So towards the end of last year, we did a series of talks on what we called some big questions about the Bible and Christianity. And people seem to find them quite helpful, so I thought we'd do another mini-series again this year. And this morning, I thought we'd talk about why bother with church? What's the point of church? In the first service, I got to this point and someone said, good question. (laughs) So maybe it is a good question. Maybe it is a big question in uh, today's world. Because if we look at it statistically, then all the surveys are telling us that increasing numbers of people aren't bothering, that they don't see the point of it. In the most recent British Social Attitude Survey in 2014, over 50% of people who identify themselves as being Anglicans said that apart from weddings and funerals, they never attend a service. Another 30% said that they only attend infrequently, which is probably overstating it a bit. And the same was true of other denominations as well. So the vast majority of people who think of themselves as Christians clearly aren't bothering with church. They aren't seeing the point. So let's start this morning by looking at some of the reasons why this is happening. And then we'll turn our attention to what God thinks about church. Because, you know, if he's not that bothered, then frankly, why should we be? But if he is, then maybe we might need to do a bit of a rethink. So what these survey results are telling us is that many, many people who think of themselves as Christians don't feel the need to be part of a church. And that's because they've separated being in a relationship with Jesus from being in a relationship with a church. And I think there are several reasons for that. The first one is completely our fault. It's because we've presented the gospel as being all about a personal relationship with Jesus. And of course, part of the reason for that is a reaction against the historic idea that if you go to church, then you're automatically a Christian. I don't know if you knew this, but in the 16th century, going to church was compulsory by Act of Parliament. And that's why in so many tiny towns and villages around the country, they've got so many big church buildings. If you didn't go, you had to pay a fine, which was over £10 in today's terms. But of course, what's happened is that the pendulum has now been swung. So now it's all about my relationship to Jesus and not at all about my relationship to church. Another reason for this is that there's been a rise in parachurch organisations, particularly in the 20th century onwards. Organisations that aren't the church but in some way are replacing what people feel church offers them, and which they often feel are actually doing it better. Why get up on a cold Sunday morning to listen to someone like me when you can go to YouTube anytime you like, watch Hillsong Worship and listen to the preacher of your choice on the subject of your choice? And, of course, that's cheaper. There's no need to give anything financially or feel guilty if you're not. How often do we hear people say nowadays, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian? In their mind, they've separated Jesus from church. So what's happened is that being part of a church has become an optional extra to what it's really all about, which is my relationship with Jesus. 
And obviously, they think Jesus is okay with that. They think that so long as he has my heart, then he's happy. They don't say this in so many words, but what they're implicitly saying is that privately, Jesus shares their view that church isn't that important. That Jesus is only really interested in getting as many individuals as possible into a personal relationship with him. After which, he's happy for them to feed their faith and shape their discipleship any which way that suits them best, in which church may or may not be involved. So for many Christians, what's happened is that the core unit of Christianity is no longer a communal thing called the church. The core unit of Christianity is now an individual thing called me, with a range of service providers of Christian goods and services that God is totally happy for me to access as and when it suits me to feed my personal faith and build me up as an individual Christian. So, of course, the consequence of these assumptions is that anything that I might choose to do in relation to church, I will only do if it works for me, if it suits me, and if I'm getting something out of it. If somehow being part of a church contributes to building me and my faith better than the other service providers on offer in the Christian world. So this is why we hear people saying things like, church isn't working for me right now. I'm not getting anything out of it. It's not meeting my needs. And then there's uh, the most spiritual sounding reason that I've ever come across uh, a few years ago. And this, this is a true story. And that's when someone told me, I'm going to stop coming to church for a while because God's told me just to pray. I was tempted, I didn't, but I was tempted to reply in the most gracious and loving way that I could. Well, God's told me that that's just delusional nonsense. If you come to every single service and every single midweek event, I've calculated that you'll still have 150 hours a week left over for praying. But, you know, if that person thinks in their heart of hearts that Jesus doesn't think that much of church either, that Jesus doesn't really think it's that important, then why couldn't God potentially be saying that to them? Now, you may be thinking at this point, well, Steve's now going to launch into why people who think like that are wrong and quote lots of Bible verses that prove that it's wrong. But, you know, the reality is that most of us, even those who are here this morning, most of us think like that at least some of the time. And I know because I used to think that myself. So I don't intend to be hard on anyone. And no way am I going to try and defend every church as to why people should see the point of what they do or how they're doing it. But what I do want to do is to look at some of the reasons why this is happening, why people think like that, what's going on underneath the surface. Things that people probably, for the most part, aren't even aware of. And it starts with something that you may have heard of, called the spirit of the age. The technical term for that is a German word, Zeitgeist. 
And if you're a serious theologian, you have to include German words in things that you write and things that you say. So that's our German word of the day, Zeitgeist. And the most helpful way I can think of to define what we mean by the spirit of the age is this. It's what the majority of people think about the way things are and the way things should be in a particular period of time, in a particular cultural setting, without even realising that they're thinking about the way things are and the way things should be. Because no other way of thinking has ever occurred to them. The spirit of the age is the sum total of everything that seems obviously right and obviously how things should be. It's a set of ideas about how society should work. And of course the collective term for a set of ideas is an ideology. So what we're talking about is the ideology of this present age in which we live. That the majority of people share in without even realising that they're sharing in anything. They've never consciously opted into it as a way of thinking because they've never noticed that there was anything to opt into. So when we come across past eras in history in which people thought very differently to the way we do today or other parts of the world where people think very differently, we tend to laugh at them or get angry with them because they're obviously wrong to think like that. The spirit of the age is like a jelly mould. Anyone ever used a jelly mould? Yeah? It's like a jelly mould into which we pour everything about life that that we think. And that jelly mould then dictates the shape of what comes out. And of course what happens is that when you take the mould away, what has been Shape, what comes out has been shaped by the mould, even though you can't see it anymore. Another way of thinking about it is uh, like a fish in water. A fish doesn't know what water is because it's never known anything else. A fish doesn't realise it's swimming in anything. It's just the way things obviously are. So in a moment we'll take a look at some of the characteristics of the spirit of the age in which we're living today. But before we do that, it's important to realise that there's nothing intrinsically good or better about the spirit of any age compared to any other age. All of them have their strengths and weaknesses. All of them offer things that are helpful for the gospel and things that are unhelpful for the gospel. And we'll look at some of those things perhaps next week. So Romans 12.2 is true in every era and every culture, whichever it is. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mould, but let God remould your minds from within. So what we have to ask ourselves is, what's the source of the way people think today about what it means to be a Christian and how that relates to church that we were talking about a moment ago? Is Jesus the source of how we think? Is stuff that we're finding in the Bible the source of what we think? Or is it things that we've unknowingly absorbed as the unspoken assumptions of the spirit of the age in which we're living? Have we let the world around us squeeze us into its mould without even being aware of it? 
So let me tell you a little bit more about the times in which we're living, and you can judge for yourselves. So the age in which we're living is called postmodernity, and it began sometime in the latter part of the last century. And I say sometime because obviously change doesn't happen overnight in that way. It can take many decades. But if you are under 40, you're more likely to be thinking in postmodern ways. If you're over 40, you're less likely to. But here's the thing. Whatever age you are, because postmodernity is the spirit of the age in the media, it's the water that we're all swimming in, whether we realise it or not. So it influences all of our thinking as to what's obvious and what's normal, however old we are. And postmodernity has three main characteristics. Number one is a rejection of meta-narratives. Now, I'm sorry about the long word, but a meta-narrative is just an explanatory story or a big picture that tells us how life ought to be lived. A meta-narrative is a framework which sets an objective standard for the people in that society as to how they should be living, how we should behave what things are right, what things are wrong, and so on. So that includes our moral decisions. Sexuality, equality, individual freedom, my rights, my responsibilities, and what things are important that everyone in a society ought to adhere to in the way society works. But postmodernity rejects the idea that there should be any such framework because It's an imposition on me. You know, the irony of this characteristic of rejection of meta-narratives is that that in itself is a meta-narrative. And in fact, what it ends up meaning is that I am my own meta-narrative. That no one tells me what to do, what to believe, or how to live. I decide all of that myself. I don't accept any authority, any external point of reference telling me what's right and what's not. Except, of course, to the extent something may feel right to me. So I have a pick-and-mix approach to assembling my own meta-narrative. Which, of course, is how many Christians approach the Bible and their pastor's opinions. A rejection of the idea of there being any authoritative meta-narrative outside of myself, impacts are pointing people to the Bible as a meta-narrative, as an authority, as a big story against which we align our lives, which is, of course, what Western society has traditionally done in past generations, however flawed the ways in which we often went about it. And it's also why politicians struggle to define what they mean by traditional values or British values and how they struggle to get people to buy into anything like that. The second characteristic is a scepticism towards institutions, an instinctive rejection of the trustworthiness and hence the authority of institutions and people who represent them. Rather than being revered and respected and put on a bit of a pedestal, as was the case in past generations, The opposite is now the case. So, for example, that applies to governments. 
It explains the rise of people like Trump and Corbyn, who in their own very different ways have set themselves up as the ordinary guys who are the champions of the obviously trustworthy people against the obviously untrustworthy political institutions. It applies to our expectations of fairness and objectivity in the media. It's why people instinctively believe Trump when he says something is fake news. It applies to our expectations of big businesses, like the big banks who we know rip people off, and the oil companies who we know pollute the environment for their own profit, and the multinationals who exploit sweatshop labour and so on. And because we've seen so many examples of these things, exposed by investigative journalism, which in past generations the establishment was probably covering up, postmodernity always expects it to be there, because it probably is there. So we're never surprised when someone or something is exposed, because it's just a matter of time, we assume. So instinctively, we are anti-big business, big organisations, and we're pro-small business and small organisations, because we see them as being more authentic. And of course, all of this stuff impacts on how we see the church, how we think about the institution of the church. So we expect there to be scandals and abuse of money and sex and authority by egotistical and hypocritical church leaders. And then number three, because all of these things compound each other, number three is the supremacy of the individual. The assumption that I personally will make all my own decisions about what I believe and what I do. In Christian language, we might call that the lordship of me. So we think we're under the lordship of Jesus. But have you noticed how his voice always ends up sounding remarkably like my own voice? Not mine, I mean yours. It might be mine, but that's not what I mean. His voice to us, because of our individualistic way of thinking, so often we think sounds like ours. And rarely does that voice ever include anything that we don't want to hear or we don't want to do. Now, of course, our relationship with Jesus should always be deeply personal. But that isn't at all the same thing as individual, me-centred and individualistic. So with this supremacy of the individual, what happens is that the teaching of the church and what the Bible says and what my pastor says has become an advisory service. Interesting, but obviously not binding. So without even realising that I've done it, I've rejected an authoritative role for the Bible, except where I agree with it. I've rejected an authoritative role for the church and those who lead the church, except where I agree with it. And I've surreptitiously redefined the lordship of Christ as the lordship of me because I'm the one that makes all my own decisions in personal consultation with Jesus. Did you know that the original definition of a heretic is someone who insists on making up their own mind about what they believe and what they do? I said that to someone at the Vineyard Conference the other week when we were chatting in the coffee queue, and she was slightly shocked. She said, I'm glad I don't go to your vineyard 
because that pretty much defines how I live my Christian life. So all three of these features of postmodernity compound each other and they build on each other. And they unwittingly shape our thinking concerning the Christian life and the place of me and the place of the church within that. So what should shape our thinking? Can we separate Jesus from the church? Is it possible to be a church-free Christian? Or just to be involved when it suits me? Without God being in the least bit bothered if I'm doing that. Now the assumption of post-modernity of course is that God thinks like I do. So of course he's not bothered. The assumption is that he shares all my scepticism. And that privately he isn't that bothered about church. And that for him too... It's all just about my own personal one-on-one relationship with him. So the starting point, if we're going to rethink some of these things that we may have taken to be obvious, is that we're going to have to be prepared to question the water that we're swimming in. We're going to have to be willing to reject our rejection of meta-narratives, at least insofar as the Bible is concerned. Because if the Bible correctly taught and correctly understood, is a window into God's meta-narrative for human life and our relationship with him and our relationship with each other, then we're going to have to allow it to have authority in our lives. If God loves the church and if his plans and his purposes are somehow centred in the church and through the church, then we're going to have to be sceptical about our scepticism about the church. We're going to have to be willing to ask ourselves the question, is Jesus in practice the supreme authority in my life? Or is it really me? And maybe for some of us that will involve some repenting, some saying sorry, some changing our minds and changing our direction. We need to know that for the first 2,000 years of Christianity, for the vast majority of Christians who've ever lived, that question of why bother with church and what's the point of church would never have occurred to them. This idea that the core unit of Christianity is me and that I'm involved with God's church only when it suits me and serves me would have been inconceivable. The Apostles' Creed was the very first statement of belief in the early church in the first generation after the New Testament was written. It was used as part of your baptismal vows, the things that you needed to believe to be considered a Christian. And it includes, I believe in the church. So if I don't see the point of church in my life, I might as well be saying I don't see the point of Jesus in my life or forgiveness in my life, or the Holy Spirit in my life. Now when it says Catholic, it doesn't mean Roman Catholic. It means Catholic small c in the sense of everybody together. And the reason it says we believe in a holy church is because that's where the presence of God is. Just like previously, they thought the presence of God was in the temple. And this phrase, I believe in the communion of the saints, means I believe in the participation of the saints. It comes from the Latin word communio, meaning to participate or to be involved with each other. So if we want to be an orthodox Christian, we need to believe in, our, in the church. We need to believe in our participation in the church. 
just as much as we believe in forgiveness, resurrection, and eternal life. And similarly, when we turn to what the Bible has to say, we need to realise that every biblical writer took it for granted that the church was at the centre of God's plans and purposes for what he does in this world. The church is described as his temple, where his presence is. The church is described as Jesus' body, so that if we're not connected to the church, the assumption was that we wouldn't be connected to Jesus. And the Bible isn't intending to be harsh or judgmental towards modern Christians who think that church is optional when it says things like that. It's not trying to make that point because it would never have occurred to them that there was the need to make that point in the first place. But the idea of a church-free Christianity that's centred on individual Christians doing their own thing, maybe in the church, maybe not, would have been inconceivable. The idea of a church-free Christian would have been inconceivable. When we were baptised, Romans 6 tells us that we were baptised into Jesus, which is obviously a very personal thing. But that's not all we were baptised into. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that in one spirit we were all baptised into one body. So we weren't baptised into nothing or just into a one-on-one relationship with Jesus in which his church doesn't feature. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church. And I don't think that it would ever have occurred to him that 21st century Christians might not see the point of joining in with him in that. If building his church was important to Jesus, then I think we should be bothered about being a part of it. Don't you? He goes on to say in the same verse, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now that doesn't mean that we will be safe when we're attacked. Has anyone ever been attacked by a gate? No. It means that the church will be the winner when we attack the gates of hell. It's the church that does the attacking. It's the church that will prevail. In John 13, Jesus says this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But in order for us to love one another, we have to be involved with one another. We have to be involved in each other's lives. Because love isn't a belief. Love is a doing word. And notice here in this passage how Jesus says that the distinctive mark of a Christian how people will know that you're a Christian isn't whether you can quote the four spiritual laws. It isn't even whether you love Jesus or not. People will know you're a Christian by whether you love other people or not. And they'll never be able to see that if we're not intimately involved in the community of Christians that we call the church. So what is the point of church? Why does Ephesians 5 say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church? Why is going to heaven pictured in Revelation as being like the wedding of Jesus the bridegroom with the church as the bride? Why is Jesus building his church? Why does Jesus love the church? 
I want to suggest three things and we'll finish with this. Number one, it's because he's called the church to be an alternative society within society. Not a secret society, not a withdrawn society, but a visible and involved society. To show the world what a community of people looks like when Jesus is Lord instead of me being Lord. How we live and love and give when Jesus is at the centre of life. To model what life can be and should be. In a group of people who don't think that they're better than everybody else or never make mistakes, but who live differently and who love differently because Jesus is at the centre of their lives. Who have real fun and real satisfaction because they have a purpose in life. A people who know God and are known by God and loved by God. But none of that is stuff that I can do all on my own, just as an individual Christian. So God's calling is not this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. If I ask you, who's the light of the world? Then no doubt you'll all answer, Jesus is the light of the world. And that's true. He said so in John chapter 8. But that's not all he said. In Matthew 5, Jesus also said, you are the light of the world. And he went on to explain what that means. He said, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So actually, we're only the light of the world together. It's not just this little light of mine. You'll never see that on a hill. No one's going to take any notice of one little candle, are they? The you is plural. Just as mostly in the New Testament when you see the word you, it's plural. It doesn't mean me. This is the kind of community, the kind of alternative society living differently to the world around it that God has always wanted to model what he is like and show the world how he can change lives. It's what Israel was called to and it's what we're called to as well. Number two, he's called the church to change the world, to bring our collective resources together and make them available to make a difference. To be people who don't just see things as they are, but with eyes of faith, see things as they can be. Who can, think, who can speak about things that are not, as if they already are, because we can see them in our mind's eye. And number three, he's called us to do that by being Jesus on earth. To do the stuff that Jesus did. To be the physical presence of Jesus, his arms and his hands and his feet. Not just by human effort, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, whom he sent to be with us and empower us to do that. He's the head, but we're the body. But notice, whenever the New Testament talks about the body of Christ, it doesn't use the plural. It doesn't say that we are his bodies. We're only the one body of Christ together. Individually, we're just spare parts. So that's why we should bother with the church. That's why we should be part of it. That's why we should commit our lives and our money and our hearts. That's why Jesus said, I will build my church. 
and why he loves the church and why he bothers with the church. And that's why he wants us to as well.